0: To the checkout. Got a little grocery update for everyone. A couple issues to talk about today. Um, some folks may have heard a uh, little issue with Danone, uh, which is a global company that not only owns lots of other companies like Horizon and So Delicious, um, etc., but also makes a lot of its own products. Everybody's probably familiar with uh, Danone and Activia. Um so Danone um makes a lot of organic milk, um, organic dairy products. So it was recently reported that they've given a year's notice um that they'll be canceling contracts to 89 organic dairy farms uh in New England and the Northeast. Um so it's given them a year's notice, so they, they've got until August 31st, 2022. Um So it it seems that other organic dairy processors in the Northeast have limited capacity to accept new producers. And what the uh, Danone folks, their press release said, because uh, this has primarily uh, to do with the Horizon organic brand, uh, they didn't make this decision lightly. Growing transportation operational challenges in the dairy industry, particularly in the Northeast, led to this difficult decision. Um, And so uh, it's a big problem because farmers up in that area of the country uh, don't have new buyers for the milk. So as an example, a bunch of the farms that are losing these contracts are up in uh, Maine. Um, and there is zero, there is no organic milk processing or packaging in Maine. Meaning that even though there's a whole bunch of organic dairies, all the organic milk you know, produced in Maine has to be trucked out of state. Um, and so they're essentially at the end of the line for, you know, logistics. And if you've ever been to Maine, uh, I'm a huge fan of Maine, it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite places in the world, but it's far, especially for the Northeast, you know, from New York City, it's eight hours North from Boston, it's four hours just to get to Maine. And by the time you get to some of the, uh, the big dairy producing areas of Maine and Northern Maine, that's another four or five hours. Um, so that they're saying that the reality is that these organic dairy farms are supplying milk that leaves the steak to be packaged comes back the logical step here is there's an infrastructure gap which is something that obviously we've we've talked about i've written about um and you know organic farmers are are thinking that danone is consolidating their supply base um and it's really disrupting the organic way of life for for dairy farmers um one dairy farmer um was saying that the stable price in organic as well as the more natural way of farming, no pesticides, no herbicides, no herbicides. very attractive to farmers. Uh, at one at one point, there were over 200 organic dairy farms in Vermont alone, um, and over 17 in Maine. Um, and that's because um, you know retail buyers, you know folks like myself, were looking for farms near to their major markets. So um, at one point, there was a organic dairy co-op called uh, Maine Organic Milk. I think it was a, a number of uh, Maine farmers that. Broke away from Organic Valley at one point, but I don't think they could sustain business uh, either. I'm not sure if they're still around. Um, so, with organic milk, demand began to soar in the 90s and early 2000s, um, and from 2002 to 2010, the industry grew between 10 and 15 percent each year. So, a lot of farmers wanted to, you know, get on the bandwagon, right? And since 2010, uh, organic fluid, organic milk, has seen uh, steady declines. Um, and there's only a few large players in um, organic dairy right now. Um, so you have Danone, which owns Horizon and Wallaby, and you know, does plenty of its own. Then you have a company called Lactalis, which is a French company, um, also a French company like Danone, but they're privately held Lactalis and they own Stonyfield, um, Stonyfield Organic. They also own Siggy's, which is not organic, uh, but is similar sort of premium brand. And the other third big player is Organic Valley, which is a you know, billion dollar a year farmer owned organic dairy co-op um, that's managed to survive and, and, and grow, um, although it's had plenty of challenges. Um, and so there's 28 uh, Vermont organic farms that are, are losing uh, this business. Um, you know, and they're saying that the organic market is not in a position to take on more of their milk. And so in terms of where Vermont is, you know, Vermont also pretty, pretty far north relative to the Northeast. Um, And the decision by Danone is a big, excuse me, it's a big hit to the overall dairy industry in Vermont. Each year they lose farms in Vermont, which is crazy. When you think of Vermont, you think of like, you know, pastoral, like, you know, paradise, uh, et cetera. You know, that's Ben and Jerry's is, or or, uh, Cabot cheese. Um, But conventional operations struggle with low milk prices paid to, uh, you know, farmers themselves and farms have pressure on them to get bigger. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, And, you know, there's also a loophole in organic regulations, which may or may not have much to do with this particular issue with Danone, but um, it is a major issue in organic and that large-scale organic farms um, can produce more cheaply, in particular that large-scale organic farms, for instance, here in Texas or in Idaho or California, you know, several thousand herd dairies uh, don't necessarily stick to the pasture rule and, you know, the the grazing rule because they're in very dry uh, climates. Um, and they're not always uh, following the, um, the livestock rule as well, which is about rotating in and out of uh, organic cows and how long that a cow has to be um, you know, kept in the herd to actually be organic. Um, and so these loopholes in the organic regulations are putting pressure on the market as a whole because it's allowing larger scale, more conventionally oriented operations to really grow. Um, and you know, one thing that's also happening in, in dairy, just in general, is consolidation, vertical integration. <clears throat> for instance, some retailers are deciding, not necessarily with organic, because they, they 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 mostly um, you know contract out for organic, but for conventional dairy, which they sell a lot more of, they just will have their own farms and they'll they'll vertically integrate a huge concentrated animal uh, feedlot operation, you know, with thousands of cows, and they'll just send trucks, boom, 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 every day to pick up. Tons of milk just from this one farm, as opposed to sending tons of trucks to lots of small farms uh, to a third-party processor, who then ships the uh, packaged milk to to the retail to the retailer's distribution center. Um, and so it's this um, pressure that is affecting all dairy. Um, organic farming is facing the same crisis that conventional agriculture is dealt with: consolidation, industrialization, vertical integration, uh, get bigger, get out. So it puts a lot of pressure. Um, on small farms in particular, in terms of how they can compete. It puts pressure on what they're able to pay their workers. And we've, we've talked a lot about that on the show about how sometimes small farms are even worse than big farms in terms of labor standards and labor violations and pay scale. Um, so just a little bit more about um, organic dairy, back to Vermont. Um, so organic dairy farms decreased 8% between 2010 and 2020. Vermont had a total of 181 organic dairy farms at the end of 2020, which is still a lot, but it's losing them. Um, The number of dairy farms overall in Vermont has decreased by 37% in the past 10 years and by 69% in the past 24 years, which is crazy. Um, And so just some some numbers overall for like where milk comes from, like where, where organic milk production is. So check this out, California, 150 farms produce 889 million pounds of milk, right? So number two is Texas, but in Texas, nine farms produce 829 million pounds of milk. So Texas has literally uh, like one-fifteenth the number of farms as California and nearly produces the same amount of milk, meaning once again, large scale organic CAFOs in Texas, concentrated animal feedlots. So Wisconsin on the other hand, 525 farms, make 440 million pounds of milk. New York, 607 farms, 386 million pounds of milk. So there's a lot of small farms in New York. New York's a major milk producing state. Um, Historically, going back to, um, I mean, really to the Revolutionary War, I mean, um, if you know your history, you'll know that in 1779, uh, General Washington sent uh, sent General Sullivan out to um, ethnically cleanse the Iroquois Confederacy to uh, burn and pillage the, uh, the nations of the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee um, in upstate New York. So it's Finger Lakes, um, central New York. Um, and so they destroyed dozens of villages and burned millions of pounds of food and, and um, you know, store, you know, stockpiles um, and essentially cleared much of upstate New York. And so you know, what happened after that, you had you know, white settlement, um, you had you know, hundreds of uh, settlers moved to upstate New York and you've had dairy farms now Going back, you know, two hundred plus years in upstate New York, it's one of the most historic dairy-producing areas uh, of the country. So on the one hand, lots of small farms; on the other hand, direct result of U.S. Uh, colonization, colonialism, and um, really the 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 Haudenosaunee being, you know, dead set, dead in the center of um, U.S. expansion during, you know, as well as protecting their uh, flank um, as the Iroquois had sided with the British um, in the past. Um, So this history of colonization actually affects the dairy industry now. But on the other hand, just as you see a lot with settler colonial countries, you know, and, and, you know, land acquisition, land speculation, those settlers themselves end up getting exploited and kicked off the land in this type of consolidation where now agribusiness is coming in and really dictating the terms of the market in terms of consolidation of farms you know, the price of milk, you know, the price that they pay at the farm gate, you know, and what farms are able to supply. Um, and, and the other thing that is happening as well is that organic fluid dairy consumption, you know, just milk consumption is down, down significantly. And let's not blame the vegans here. <laughs> there, there's other things at play. Yes, yes, there is plenty of uh, incremental sales volume from oat milk and almond milk and, you know, other plant-based milks. Um, but just in general, people are drinking less milk. However, however, organic butter and regular conventional butter, butter sales are up. Cheese sales are up, particularly butter and cheese sales are up during the pandemic. So dairy overall, while it has consolidated and contracted a bit, is still very large, uh, very robust market. So there's plenty of dairy, right? And because um, much of the costs and efficiencies with dairy, Um, has to actually do with what happens outside of the farm. Um, And let me explain this. So the whole thing with dairy is um, when you're growing cows, making cows to make milk, cows aren't just making whole milk, right? There's demand for butter, right? There's demand for cheese. Oh yeah, and ice cream. Ice cream sales continue to grow in leaps and bounds. And even though plant-based ice creams are taking on additional volume and growing market share they're still teeny tiny compared to uh you know plain old dairy cow ice cream so the thing is with milk there's something called balancing and and i i related as something very similar to petroleum fracturing where you you take off different levels of the crude oil to make uh, different products you know natural gas and plastics and gasoline and diesel etc well you know it may sound gross but it's similar with milk and so with balancing um, once the milk goes to a processor, um, that processor, which is usually part of a co-op, um, like with Organic Valley, or at a much larger scale, um, you know, the, essentially in the monopoly cooperative of milk producers in the U.S. called Dairy Farmers of America, DFA, controls a huge portion of, of the milk that's produced. Um, so what, what they're trying to do is balance out the demand and the supply. And the, and the main thing that they have to figure out is you have all this fluid, so you, you're selling a lot of whole milk. Now, whole milk is actually still growing in sales, but skim is down 2%, 1% down in sales. People don't really care about that stuff as much anymore, right? Um, and the whole thing is, if you want butter, you have to sell skim, right? Because you got to take all the, the milk fat off. You take the butter fat off, right? If you want cheese, some, somewhere the, the skim has to go because you know, a, lot, a lot of cheese as well is, is butter fat you want to sell half and half, you want to sell heavy cream, you know, all these things are actually still growing, especially with some of these wackadoodle, you know, ketogenic diets and paleo diets, right? Um, or the fact that butter tends to be very trendy. Now people are eating a lot less disgusting margarine and, you know, hydrogenated oil. So they figure they'll eat more, more butter. On the other hand, you know, there, there's still plenty of plant-based spreads out there too, but butter sales are still up. Ice cream sales are up. Well, what that does, it puts pressure on the supply chain because you have to find outlets now for all the skim, the way. Right. And so, what do you do with that? Well, that's where you get protein drinks and protein powders. You know, you, you see it all over, you know, whether it's uh, organ or muscle milk or, you know, tons of other stuff. And then you also have further processed, you know, milk where you see, um, you know, milk protein, you know, protein powder or milk as an additive or a sub ingredient in thousands of products, you know, whether it's chocolate or, uh, you know, they're making cereal out of milk protein now. Um, you know, and baked items like cookies, crackers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so this, this whole act of balancing is actually really hard for processors. I was once told by an executive of a big dairy uh, co-op that in their whole time of, you know, producing and, and supplying milk, they had forecasted demand accurately for maybe a handful of weeks over their, their whole 30 years. Like, it's just really hard. Um, and it's also milk and you know, sell it or smell it, right? Milk goes bad very quickly, even if, even if it's pasteurized or ultra pasteurized, it's, it's only gonna last for a few months um, at the most. You know, when it's you know, minimally pasteurized, you're talking about you know, days or weeks, right? And then of course there's also raw milk, but we're not gonna talk about that right now. Um, and so the whole thing with balancing um, and trying to figure out production and trying to meet demand That sort of uh, headlong crashes into the fact that the way we calculate milk prices in this country is absurdly complicated and ridiculous. The milk pricing order uh, determined by the federal government, there's, uh, I believe, four, maybe five classes of dairy, and there's over a dozen producing regions. And the milk ag economists at the USDA do a bunch of college-level math to figure out what the farm gate price of milk needs to be depending on you know, the destination of, of that milk, whether it's fluid or um, you know, cream, you know, butter, you know, et cetera. Um, and it's super complicated. And it's a very different system than in other countries where they have more of a supply management, um, you know a quota and a price control system where milk uh, moves up and down with the cost of inflation um, you know the cost of consumer prices. You know consumer prices as well, what what they're willing to spend in the marketplace, as well as the you know the cost of production, so that farmers can stay on the land. Whereas in the U.S., it's highly highly complicated and essentially mostly market driven, except for the fact which we've talked about on the show before, much of the animal feed, um, particularly at large scale, CAFOs and vertically integrated operations, you know conventional farms. Are subsidized, right? We've talked about how the Trump administration subsidized over sixty-five billion dollars in agricultural commodities. A lot of which went to animal feed, and some of it was uh, uh, exported to other countries. But a lot of it stays in, in you know, in this country and goes to mills, which uh, goes to then then goes to farms. But you know, keep in mind a lot of the, the animal feed and smaller dairies is, is produced regionally um, and may not be a subject to um, some of these these subsidies. And I'm not even gonna talk right now about true cost accounting of, of conventional feed in terms of whether or not the feed uh, externalities have been factored into to the actual cost to the grower because um, that's not, that's not uh, something that gets factored in at all in this country, right? So um, it, these are some of the big um, things going on with, with balancing and what you've had in this country where you've got all these small farms um trying to stay in the marketplace and you know farm ownership you know land ownership um you know we we have to make sure we we look at this objectively like even small farmers are big landowners right and they, they they have some capital they have a lot of lot more capital than me or you most likely do unless you happen to be you know very wealthy i i'm lucky i own i own a house right i bought a house 10 years ago and i own a house i'm very very fortunate Um, I rented until I was in my mid thirties. Right. So farms are different. You know, a lot of farmers, they own the land, you know, some of them have a mortgage on it. Um, Others are, others are in a ton of debt, but overall the overall net worth of farmers in this country is over a million dollars, which is significantly more than my net worth and probably yours. Right. So that's one thing. So um, I'm not here to rag on farmers per se, but I want us to keep that in mind too, because Farmers or landowners, and they're also business people, right? So here's the other thing with milk and with balancing um, and the and the minimum pay price, particularly with conventional. When that price goes down, farmers still have to cover their expenses and make a margin, may, maybe even pay themselves some income. They may or may not be. They may be working off farm jobs, like a lot of farm farmers have off farm jobs, whether nurses or police officers or clerical workers, etc. Um, you know, city officials. Um, you know but dairy farming is hard work. So they're still putting in many, many, many hours of that. And the fact that like we've talked about they usually have hired hands. They usually have people working on the farm who they have to pay. Um, and we've, we've also talked about how, you know we have to make sure that dairy farm workers are paid a living wage and given health care and um, you know, treated well, treated with dignity, right? But the pressure on that farmer in terms of the farm gate price in order to cover all that is immense, right? And so for the farmer, the easiest thing for them to do when that farm gate price goes down is to overproduce, produce more. And what that does, it puts more pressure on the marketplace because then there is a surplus of milk, which once again, further drives the price down. And so you know, the US government steps in re- regularly um, and buys millions of tons of cheese. Like there's this huge to- stockpile, huge stockpile of government cheese, literally cheese that they've bought of surplus uh, dairy production, you know, Scott Walker, when he was a uh, Republican governor of Wisconsin, you know, one of his signature things that he did was ramp up dairy production. Uh, and I was like, oh, I was like 12 or 13 years ago, like, we're going to be, you know, the leading milk producer in the world, Wisconsin dairy, it's the greatest. And within five years, that caused hundreds of farm bankruptcies, because they were overproducing so much milk, and they were having to compete with these massive CAFOs, these underregulated or unregulated CAFOs in other states that you had hundreds of dairy farms that lost their contracts, that they couldn't sustain the business due to low milk prices. And milk prices go up or down, right? And so it's, there's, there's supply and demand with that. Uh, but it's not a free market for those of you who may be more orthodox classical economics uh, people or, 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 you know, or even more laughably libertarians. You know, there's so much, not only government intervention, but it's not an honest marketplace either, because once again, the true cost accounting um, and the fact that it's so complicated relative to the federal milk order, but that price doesn't take into account um, you know, inflation or the cost of keeping you know, the farm running, uh, let alone what the market may actually bear. And you know, the whole point with that milk order is to keep milk cheap at the grocery store shelf. Milk is cheap, most folks know the price of milk if they consume milk. And it's one of the known value items that retailers always make sure they, they know what the price of milk is and what their competition um, is, is selling milk for. And finally, the other, the other thing I, I just wanna talk about with milk besides balancing uh, and demand planning, demand forecasting and how complicated it is, is the logistics piece. The, the other real crazy thing about milk is much of the shelf price and what you see um, in stores of what milk is retailed for, and the type of, you know, the type of milk is determined sometimes by you know, the attribute, whether it's organic or grass-fed, um, but also how efficiently it's been sourced and distributed. So just as an example, in the organic space, Organic Valley was able to grow and thrive because what they did was they set up producer pools of small farms in a given community. So they would go to a, a given county in maybe Western Wisconsin where they started, and they would find 40 or 50 farms, small farms that they could convert to organic and that would supply them with milk. And then they would send the trucks on that route. And those truck routes were really efficient. They'd pick up a hundred gallons here, or a few hundred gallons there, a couple thousand gallons there, you know, and a milk tanker truck is like, I believe 30,000 gallons. So at, you know, at some point they filled up the tanker truck, head back to the processor, you know, dump the load uh, so that, you know, it gets homogenized and pasteurized and then go back out for... You know, uh, you know, another round of stops. And then, like I said earlier, the way that like a lot of DFA farms work, a lot of, you know, you know how Walmart's supply works, how Kroger sources from vertically integrated CAFO, HEB here in Texas, uh, sources from a lot, a lot of their farms are large scale, although they do source from a lot of small farms, um, but a lot of it is large scale. That creates efficiencies because you send one truck to one farm over and over again, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, to the processor where the milk comes back in, gets homogenized, pasteurized, um, you know, and either um, packaged or, um, or you know, the different layers are taken off for, for various further processed products. And so, just to wind down this conversation, the whole thing with Danone here, um, and I actually did reach out to them, and surprisingly they responded to me. I'm like, well, you guys don't have to get back to me anymore. I'm not your key buyer, but Um, You know, when I was at Whole Foods, Danone was one of our big uh, brands, but at that time, Danone owned Stonyfield, which was my fifth largest or sixth largest brand that I worked with across the whole company. It was huge. Um, And Stonyfield is no longer owned by Danone due to um, antitrust. Uh, Lactalis picked up Stonyfield when Danone bought Horizon. Um, A lot of us in the industry, including myself, made a big stink. Like you cannot have Danone own Horizon and Stonyfield because Stonyfield also sources milk from Organic Valley. I think like 75 or 80% of their milk at one point had been coming from Organic Valley, which would make um, you know Horizon owned, owned by Danone, also sourcing their other large brand from Organic Valley, controlling way too much of the organic marketplace. So anyway, Danone, a large organic buyer, um, they got back to me and they were like, so. It's true, we are firing these farmers. We give 89 farmers notice, we're very sad about it, Uh, but it is purely a logistics and manufacturing decision. Um, And what they told me was that these farms, like we're talking about here, they're at the end of the line in terms of logistics and pickup, whether it's in Maine or in Vermont, and their manufacturing and processing is in Western New York, which I can verify, I mean, I can validate, there's a whole lot of milk processing in upstate New York, in fact, Um, You could actually look up the code of milk. Um, When you look at um, the date stamp at the top of a milk carton, um, if you drink milk or if you're at a grocery store, there's a number of numbers. The first two numbers are the state code of where, which state. And then there's a longer number, like a four-digit number. That number indicates the plant code. And then you could go to a website called Uh, where is my milk from? No, I'm serious. There's a website called, where's my milk from? And it'll tell you once you punch in your number, the state and the the processing facility. So this is something in the future where uh, with Danone, with Danone milk products, with Horizon, that is Horizon Organic Milk, you can actually verify where the milk uh, came from. And, you know, Horizon, they make not only like, um, you know, HTST, like regular pasteurized, but they also make a lot of ultra high temp pasteurized and that allows them to ship it further and have longer shelf life. So you'll sometimes see milk from you know, upstate New York, you know, further south or west than the northeast. Um, and so at this point, what they're saying is, we're not moving this production in particular to Texas or Idaho or California to any of these big CAFOs. They said that they um, have signed another 50 new organic farms in New York and Pennsylvania that are closer to their manufacturing um, their their co-processing facilities in uh, upstate New York. So um, it's, it's a total bummer because like they're having to, you know, leave all these farmers really in the lurch and there's probably not enough demand to support keeping these farmers in business. Maybe, maybe an ice cream manufacturer will come through. Maybe one of these uh, other organic folks will say, oh, we need more butter or we need more cheese. I hope so. Um, So Danone essentially made a decision here Based on logistics and infrastructure, which are two things we talk about ad nauseum on this show. It's one of those things that, like the food movement, the farm-to-table movement, you know, uh, you know, we don't really understand how so much of what it'll take and what it does take on a day-to-day basis to to make the food system better, to transform the food system, to let alone to sustain what we have now is based off of logistics and infrastructure. The first thing being, as we mentioned earlier, is there's no organic milk processing in Maine, which is crazy. The fact that you're having to ship fluid in a truck, 30,000 gallons over the highway, six to eight hours to a manufacturing facility. Albany, New York um, is at least six hours from Portland, Maine. So it probably makes it eight to 12 hours from some of the other farms in Maine. Um, and you know there's processing way west of Albany too. There's processing all of the, all along the I- I90 corridor in upstate New York if you've ever been up there. Beautiful country, one, also one of my favorite places, but plenty of milk and milk processing, right? Um, and so what they're saying, Danone is saying they're switching the, the, um, the farmers. They're getting more farms in New York and Pennsylvania that are closer to their supply chain, which is essentially enabling them to cut down on logistics costs. Uh, to help them save money, and the fact that they're also saying, which, once again, something we talk about here on the show a lot, there is a shortage. Uh, they can't find enough drivers right now, which is actually uh, the subject of a two-part article that I wrote in Forbes recently, and why it's so uh, hard to find people to do, particular blue-collar, high-risk, um, you know, low-paying jobs. And you know, trucking is one of the most popular jobs in every state. You know, you have hundreds of thousands of truckers. And um, you know, there's not enough truckers to go around right now, especially with the growth in e-commerce and uh, home delivery and just the demand on the economy with folks having stimulus money um, and staying at home more and buying more at home. Well, it's affecting everything. And that includes milk. So, um, so Danone and their decision to uh, let go of 79 organic dairy farms really seems to hinge on Two things that we've talked about here on the show quite a bit that we need to figure out in this country is um, you know, better manufacturing infrastructure, more regionalized processing and manufacturing, but also what we've talked about a lot is living wages, better compensation, better treatment at work, paid sick leave, better healthcare benefits, paid childcare leave for blue collar workers, whether it's grocery retail workers, or in this case truckers, you know. How many truckers are in it for the long term because they they either own options or they're employee owned or they're Teamsters, right? they're they're still unionized. Um, so much of the growth in independent trucking happened in the '80s by busting the Teamsters union. And really, you could chart the decline of the Teamsters union relative to the decline in the the uh, compensation standards and the working conditions in trucking. And that's actually a big part of one of the chapters of. Ben Lohr's book about the uh, the uh, grocery industry, uh, the secret life of groceries, um, and there's also other books about that too. So, trucking infrastructure, being, you know paying blue collar workers better. Here it is a nasty backlash to almost 80. Um, you know probably beautiful scenic. Uh, organic dairy farms in Maine and Vermont who may or may not have been paying their workers. Well, we don't know because, you know, we still haven't reformed the fair labor standard Act, the national labor act, relations act Wagner act to make sure that farm workers are paid a living wage and, you know, treated with the same rights that me and you have for all the work that we have done. So we don't know that, but in the meantime, it's a bummer. It's a bummer for these farmers. Um, and, you know, Danone has made a really tough and nasty decision and, um, it's a decision that works better for their bottom line, but it's also not accurate that they're switching to big CAFOs or they're trying to skirt the livestock rule or they're moving production even further west to Texas and Idaho. They're just moving it to New York and Pennsylvania to farms closer to their manufacturing facility. So maybe we'll see some organic milk manufacturing and processing open up. You know, if you build it, they will come, right? Obviously organic butter, uh, organic you know, ice cream, organic cheese, those things are all growing. And maybe you just need more manufacturing for those types of products. In addition, you know, it it may be time to think about the, you know, just transition in dairy, you know, and um, I I know I have a lot of plant-based vegan listeners here and hopefully they haven't been too turned off by all this dairy talk, Um, but it may be talk, it may be time to talk about how to transition dairy farms, uh, particularly in the Northeast, away from dairy and, you know, to other crops, other commodities or other trades. Um, And I really strongly feel that vegans, plant-based advocates should be also advocating for a just transition for dairy farms, um, especially as fluid milk declines. You know, there's a chance some of these farms may be able to uh, stay in cheese or or yogurt or or ice cream or butter. On the other hand, I think it would meet the goals of, um, you know, good food system advocates, uh, food justice advocates, and, you know, worker advocates, as well as vegans, plant-based advocates to transition some of these farms away from dairy. So that's something else. I think there's a lot to this. Um, and I'm glad that we, we, we were able to use this opportunity, this unfortunate and really sad, you know, really tragic crisis for these farmers to, you know, kind of pry open the, uh, you know, inner workings of the dairy industry, how things actually happen um and you know what some alternatives are obviously i'm available anytime if folks want to talk more or have questions i'll probably be writing about this stuff uh, a little bit as well um and uh, appreciate everybody listening so um i want to actually give a big shout out to uh ben Lore and his film crew I actually got interviewed for some little project that they're doing so chris and chachi and stefania just want to say what's up thanks for interviewing me it was a very pleasant experience. I don't usually like being in front of the camera. I'm much more comfortable in front of the mic. Um, and I also wanna give a plug for a book I just finished reading, also having nothing to do with dairy. Um, it was actually recommended by Sarah Jaffe. So big shout out to Sarah Jaffe. I interviewed her for the podcast. We'll be releasing that episode soon. And she recommended I read the biography of Tony Mazaki called The Man Who Hated Work and Loved Labor. And this guy, like, I've never heard of him before. I, I'm not big on labor history, on trade union history. I'm not really, really too keen on, on all the inner workings. I'm obviously a you know, big, big advocate for fair labor, fair work, for collective bargaining, for solidarity. And I'm starting to read a bit more in labor history. So this guy, Tony Mazaki, is from Brooklyn. So what's up Brooklyn? Um, but he's like my grandparents age. Uh, he was born in the twenties, uh, was a World War II vet and went right into uh, the Chemical Workers Union, worked on the factory floor for the Helena Rubinstein Company. I only heard of Helena Rubinstein because she gives a ton of money to PBS. I didn't realize she made cosmetics back in the day. And um, he moved up the ranks and became a really influential, really effective labor leader. He wasn't able to you know, become president of his union, but he, he was able to make a lot of really interesting things happen as a mid and high level uh, union bureaucrat he's very progressive too. Um, he's actually the guy, him and his union and his his colleagues uh, created OSHA. They got Congress, I should say, they got Congress to create OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act. He was like the original like green labor coalition dude, like in terms of forming uh, coalitions with environmentalists to the point where like he was there at the first Earth Day. It's like, I had no idea that like trade unions were involved in this sort of stuff way back then. You know, I'd, I'd really, you know, Grown up seeing, you know, a lot of conflict between environmentalists usually at very, you know, bourgeois, uh, you know, middle class concerns about the environment, you know, having conflicts with unions and workers and environmental justice activists representing working class people. And he's this guy was like ahead of the curve. He actually talked about a just transition for for people in his union for people in his industry, which included oil workers, chemical workers, atomic workers excuse me etc so i'd really recommend um the man who hated work and loved labor biography of tony mazaki uh, really really epic legendary labor leader bit of a philanderer and ladies man too i don't really approve of his uh his his, his particular uh philandering you know getting divorced twice and the guy probably needed to settle down and just take it easy there but in terms of his work as a uh, labor activist and you know, early environmentalists, occupational safety and health advocate, like way ahead of his time. Actually, I actually think there's a ton of learnings from from what uh, Tony Mizaki did for the food movement, for the food industry, in terms of tying food justice issues into worker-centric changes and a just transition for the food industry. Uh, you know, away from like large-scale conventional CAFO, um, etc., but also how to protect jobs and livelihoods and you know, not kick farmers off the land you know not kick farm workers out of their jobs to to make sure it works for everybody and this is a guy who came up with this stuff sort of stuff uh, for uh really you could say the worst of all industries this guy was in oil and chemical and um atomic and you know it's it's stuff that all of us rely on right and we take it for granted um, but also the fact that um the work that he did with osha not only has been overlooked but you know Um, we need to strengthen OSHA again. We've talked about this on the show that, you know, OSHA is not being enforced. It's been gutted. And that's why so many hundreds of meat plant and food processing workers died and tens and thousands got sick and hundreds of thousands got sick in their communities. Um, And that all could have been prevented with a stronger OSHA that, you know, had more enforcement authority, um, such as a emergency temporary standard authority over, um, you know, meat and food processing plants. And that, that is all the creation of this man and uh, his colleagues, uh, Tony Mizaki. Anyway, so just want to recommend that. Um, so thanks for listening to this episode of the checkout. Appreciate everybody's support, uh, reach out anytime and have a great week. Happy labor day. Peace.